Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, good whiskey and cheap beer. And uh, it was just very good stuff. Not great stuff, but very good. And it was only $11 a bottle. And for $11 a bottle, it was the best buy on the planet. A lot of times what a novice in particular is doing is they're misidentifying uh, the effect of too much alcohol on their senses as being this, you know, like kind of, uh, charish taste. And this caused the whole business to crash. Um, both in Scotland, Ireland, United States, Canada, everybody was sitting on top of a ocean of whiskey. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share, We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So if you're anything like me, you've been drinking at least a little bit more with everything that's been going on. Now, I go cheap. I drink the cheap stuff. But it got me thinking about, all right, what's what's really good? What do the experts look at and say, you know what, this, this is the stuff that you should be drinking. Our first guest is one of those experts. He runs the website, The Whiskey Reviewer, and he has tried thousands upon thousands of different whiskeys. And not only does he have fascinating insight into what's really good and what you should be drinking, but also some behind-the-scenes knowledge about the alcohol industry that's just, it's stuff that, oh, I didn't know that worked like that. This is whiskey critic Richard Thomas. So how many whiskeys do you think that you've tried in your lifetime? Oh, that's a difficult question to put a finger on. But um, I did a book called American Whiskey, which um, was about you know distillers from coast to coast. So I've done notes on over 800. And so therefore, including the stuff I haven't done notes on because it hasn't been commercially released or you know I was just enjoying dinner and didn't want to bother with it or what have you. Um, that would probably push it into the four low four-digit number range, somewhere between uh, 1,200 and 1,500. Wow. But how different are most of those, right? Did they all kind of run together eventually? Yeah, well, within a particular category, maybe. You know, it's kind of like if I were to be talking about, you know, comparing uh, bourbon to scotch, which are the two big ones. Um, yeah, I mean, basically if you try to do 300 bourbons and then you try to do 300 scotch whiskeys, they will be very different from each other and you will not be mixing the two in your head in any way, shape or form. Our own perceptions of what we taste and smell and experience, um, 
can change with a lot of other subjective factors, like basically, you know, um, what did you eat? Um, how are you feeling physically? And then, of course, there's just simply what you like and what you don't like. Um, some people have genetic issues, like, um, you know, there's a genetic uh, tag I was re- I was reading about last year, and I would point to people about this if they didn't like particular things that really, really amps up the negative response to bitter flavors, which means there's a whole you know, swaths of food and drink that um, just, you know, they don't like it, period. And there's no way that they can. Um, so these things are very variable. And you have to try to take your time with them in order to, you know, mitigate that. So when you, like, when you evaluate a whiskey, what are you doing? Kind of walk me through the steps that you're looking at. Like, how do you go about tasting it? That kind of stuff. Well, you know, basically I will pour, um, I'll pour a simple dram size or shot size. So we're talking like 30 to 50 milliliters. And, um, the first thing I will do is, um, give it just a preliminary nosing just to see, um, if the alcohol content is too strong. This is especially the case because, um, cask strength and, uh, entry proof whiskeys, which can be very potent indeed. Um, have become more and more popular in recent years. And sometimes, you know, basically it's a, it's a good bargain, especially if the quality of the whiskey in question is quite high because um, you've got more stuff in your bottle, you know, like a concentrated uh, cleaner as opposed to the regular strength. I mean, you know, you bring it up and it burns your nostrils. Um, so there's that check, which is basically like, a, okay, do I need to dial this down or not? And then... You know, you do the same kind of thing that you would be told to do on any distillery tour or guided tasting with a brand ambassador with someone like me, which is, you know, you start by nosing it, you keep your mouth open a little bit to allow for that um, olfactory circulation. And um, you get acquainted with it that way and you take a little sip and then you nose it some more and then you start sipping on it some more. And, you know, you um, draw that out. Because as you proceed through it, you know, you'll pick up on things that you didn't notice at first. It's, it's very much like, you know, you get acquainted with people, especially with a new whiskey. It's basically like going out on a first date, getting to know someone. So you take your time with it. Um, when I'm doing an evaluation of something that's new, it usually takes me uh, 45 minutes to an hour. So the first sip necessarily, like that's not really going to give you an idea of what it tastes like. Yeah, I mean, um, spirits in particular um, are very high proof, Um, even, you know, like basic spirits that are bottled at like 40% alcohol by content or 80 proof. um, They do have a tendency to, at least initially, overwhelm your senses. Um, A lot of people, for example, uh, when they're dealing with bourbon, there's this flavor called, that they like to call barrel char. Um, A lot of times what a novice in particular is doing is they're misidentifying uh, the effect of too much alcohol on their senses as being this, you know, like kind of um, charish taste. So why whiskey? What about whiskey drew you into it? Oh, well, that's um, that's very much tied into my youth. I mean, I was born and raised in Kentucky and... I am a Gen Xer, so, you know, I'm a very much a kid of the 70s and the 80s. Now, in this state back then, I mean, that was like the nadir of 
the whiskey business around the world. In the 70s, um, the tastes of the boomers in particular began to change. It's something that people in the alcohol industry talk a lot about, actually. You know, they moved away from whiskey and towards clear spirits like vodka and got more and more into wine as well. Um, and this caused the whole business to crash, um, both in Scotland, Ireland, the United States, Canada. Everybody was sitting on top of a ocean of whiskey that they couldn't sell. You know, it was looked at as a very kind of working class, blue collar kind of drink. So um, it wasn't as celebrated as this, um, you know, source of regional and national pride the way that it is today. And so for me, the beginning of all of this was one day when I was um, 17 years old, I was uh, looking at a feature on a map called Glens Creek, and I thought that that would make for some good outdoor exploring. So I drove my car over there. I parked it on a road called McCracken Pike, and I got off my bicycle out of the back and began pedaling around for a way that I thought I could safely access Glens Creek because it was all on private property, and I didn't want to get you know my my butt shot up with rock salt by some angry local farmer. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to get down there. And as I'm pedaling along, I came across um, a trio of what looked like abandoned industrial sites, one of them very industrial looking, but the other two were quite different because they had these, you know, one of them was a uh, kind of faux castle that was falling into disrepair. When I came back from this trip to like, what the heck was going on down there? I discovered that these were three distilleries and the fact that two of them were even as, you know, kind of, you know, already falling into disrepair, semi-ruined, uh, you know, complexes, um, were quite beautiful. And that kind of gave me my first hint that there was more to this story of Kentucky bourbon than I had been led to believe and those three distilleries in a row today are now Woodford Reserve, uh, Castle and Key, and the Glens Creek Distillery. Huh. They're all they've all they've all been renovated. So how do you tell the difference between something that's bad necessarily or just not for you? Ah, uh, well, that actually is a really good question, and uh, my usual answer to that, because I'm not a snob, is. Um, you know, basically, if you like it, it's good. That's that's the simplest way to get at it. If you like it, it's good. Um, and, you know, it's I, I encourage people to not let people like me, for example, influence uh, their thinking on things too much. You know, I, I, in fact, I think that, you know, if you find um, a critic who is very snotty about these things and insists that I know the difference that everyone should adhere to as far as what's good and what's not and what's you know, excellent and what's terrible and and um, they, they tell you that only one type of glassware is really all that good I mean you know um, Jimmy Russell um, who's you know quite an institution in uh, the Kentucky bourbon industry I mean you know he's the master distiller at wild turkey for decades and the first time I ran into Jimmy he was hanging out at Keeneland which is the local horse uh, track here in Lexington Kentucky and he was drinking his wild turkey out of a Dixie cup so um, some things, you know, are good tools that help you get the most out of your experience. And, of course, having nice trappings is fun. But at the end of the day, um, 
snobbery is uh, defining how much you love something by how much you hate it. So, <laughs> and I would rather not spend any time hating on anything. So as far as what's bad, I mean, I tend to approach it from, I don't think most people will like this. You know, as you're reading what different people say about different things and developing your own tastes, you should try to gravitate to the people who mirror you the most. And then you have a good guide. I mean, I remember when I kind of first hit legal drinking age to go into a store and actually buy it. It seemed like mm -hmm. there was just a couple of brands, you know, Jack Daniels, Jim Bean, and maybe one other thing. Now you go in there and there's aisles full of it. Like, how do you sort yeah. through it all? Oh, well, that's, that's where the, uh, having the internet around is certainly a big help because, you know, as you're sitting there looking at it, you can just whip out your phone and plug certain stuff in and find out what's what. One of the bigger issues these days with the uh, plethora of brands that are sitting on the shelves in the liquor store now is, um, you know, who made what, uh, which comes up a lot. I mean, basically just because it says that, um, you know, we're from old-timey whiskey distillery doesn't necessarily mean there really is an old-timey whiskey distillery. A lot of uh, companies are basically just bottlers. You know, they'll buy uh, stock whiskey um, aged uh, at a distillery, um, and, uh, that isn't theirs. And, um, you know, they'll take charge of blending it, which is an underappreciated art in the United States. I mean, basically, um, you know, when you age a barrel of whiskey, how it's, you know, it'll always come out within certain parameters, but exactly what you'll have at the end of that process, you know, it's not necessarily a fixed uh, proposition. The best example, in fact, of um, trying to control for that would be Maker's Mark. Those guys uh, spend a lot of money on labor in terms of doing what's called barrel rotation. So they have their warehouses and they're moving their barrels around the warehouses in a pattern that is designed to achieve, you know, the most consistent maturation possible. So that the difference from one barrel to another is almost nil. And so when they dump all those barrels into a tank and the tank feeds into bottling, they don't actually have to do this process of trying to uh, fine-tune it. So, you know, they put a lot of investment in how they age it so that, you know, in terms of moving stuff around and the labor that's involved with that. So they don't have to do a lot of work at the end of the process when they have to bottle the stuff. Most other people do it kind of differently where they'll have like a nine floor warehouse and, um, you know, how the barrels at the top of the warehouse come out will be very different from how the barrels at the bottom do. And that's predictable, but two barrels that are sitting right next to each other because of the wood or any other factor, um, could also come out quite differently and taking like 500 of these things in a batch and fine-tuning that so you wind up with a consistent product but you know bottling run after bottling run after bottling run is both an you know there's a lot of skill and a little bit of art to it and a lot of americans don't appreciate that very much the way that the scots do because to the scots the idea of buying whiskey from like you know 20 or 25 separate distilleries each with their own separate identities and putting it together into a single product is normal 
<laughs> so over here, you don't get that. And so you have a lot of companies that do this business. They'll source the whiskey and they'll bottle it themselves. And, um, you know, if you don't actually look up who they are and what they're doing, you don't really know what is what it is that you're actually getting. I didn't know that. I just assumed that whoever's name was on the bottle was controlling the whole process of making it all the way to shipping it. No, there's a, there's a distillery in uh, southern Indiana. These days they call it MGP. It's left over from the uh, breakup of the Seagram's Corporation um, some 20 years ago. And uh, basically they are at this point the uh, single largest producer of um, basically, I guess you could call it whiskey available on the open market. I like to call that stock whiskey. So more or less, if you're, if you want to start up your own whiskey brand and you don't want to build a distillery and you need to get um, hundreds of barrels of whiskey that's been aged for at least a few years to get started, more than likely you're going to go to MGP and ask them for it. And a lot of brands that are around, especially in rye whiskey, um, are based in this way. Um, for a long time, they were pretty much the only source for this stuff. But as demand for their own products picked up, um, they increasingly had to close that spigot um, because they needed their stock for themselves and for their own products. So there was no need to sell it to anyone else anymore. Huh. Um but now, some, you know, because the demand is so high, other players have entered the market. I mean, there's a distillery. Um, it's now one of the largest in the state down in Bardstown, Bardstown Bourbon Company. And their primary business model is being a contract distiller for sourced brands. Um, you know, basically, they've. Uh, I think the last time I talked to them, they had 30-something uh, clients. And, um, you know, more or less, they were just like, you know, they, they, uh, they, they make a deal. They make what the client asks them to make. They age it in their warehouses and, um, they either ship it to the client for bottling or arrange bottling, you know, themselves. And, uh, yeah, that's, you know, like when you look at the liquor store and they're, if they're doing 30 something brands, it's a pretty good bet that several of them are now customers of, um, Bardstown Bourbon Company, and several more are customers of MGP up in Indiana, and a few more are sourcing from somebody in Canada or sourcing from, you know, some small, uh, smaller distillery that might be closer to them or what have you. So a lot of brands, you know, they don't actually own a distillery or they want to, but they, you know, that, that's another thing that's a part of this with you know, a lot of the smaller companies is basically, you know, they want to get into the distilling business, but that's a lot of investment in hardware. And then you have to make the whiskey and you have to, you know, put it up for maturation for two years, four years, six years, eight years. Um, it's a lot of money to tie up in the process. And certainly you don't want to start building up your brand only once you have a good product to sell. Um, because that could be a decade later. That, that, that makes sense because I'd always look at these companies and like, wait a minute, this is a new thing. Did yeah. they start making this 10 years ago? And that kind of yeah, answers exactly. that question, right? Like they just, so you could essentially start up a brand and six months later, you've got a 10 year old whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can do that. Um, mind you at this stage, finding a 10 year old whiskey, that's, you know, stock whiskey, you know, in barrels and is available for that kind of thing. Um, that would be hard to do and very expensive. 
but um, you could find four or five year old stuff and, uh, you know, buy a bunch of it and bottle some of it now and then do your 10 year old a few years later. Something along those lines. That's what a lot of people are actually have been doing um, since, you know, 2014, 2016. You know, a decent uh, American whiskey, it's mature at about four years. It's properly aged at six to nine. It's middle-aged at about 9 to 12, and it's really old, above 15 years. And uh, Scotch and Irish is even more so. So it's a business where you really um, kind of, you, you can't even, you know, you have to be thinking about stuff that's so far in the future that you have no way of really knowing what's going to be happening by the time that you get there. Yeah, that would be a definite challenge, right? Like, let's make this yeah. product for 2032. We actually have a bunch of Listener submitted questions that I think kind of cover a lot of the topics well. So are, okay. you, are you ready for some listener submitted questions? Hit me. Most expensive whiskey you have ever tried? Oh, boy, boy. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was writing a piece about um, what the most expensive scotch whiskeys in the world are. And um, one of the things that got, like, Though at the top of this list was this um, 50-year-old Macallan. Um, but, you know, it, it's, was, it's both 50 years old and a 50-year-old collectible because the version that I'm talking about was bottled in 1983. So, <laughs> amazingly, it's like I think when this stuff hit the market, it could be remembering this wrong, but like in 1983 it was um, – uh, being sold for uh, 50 British pounds a bottle. And nowadays, if you want to get this stuff, it's um, over 100 grand. Holy. Yeah. Um, I've tried that. And I think that is the most expensive thing that has passed my lips. Was it, was it worth it? Like, did you spend- oh, I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. It oh. was, um, and in fact, at the time that I tried it, it wasn't, it was it was worth a, a five figure amount of money, but not a six figure amount of money. Um, but yeah, it was one of these things where I was at a show and someone was like, "Hey, I have a little flask of you know the 1983 50 year old Macallan." Um, and so we sat down, and he's the kind of person that would have this mm-hmm. <laughs> on him um, and would be bringing it to this kind of place. And so yeah, I got to try it and. It was sublime, but, you know, keeping in mind the fact that the amount of money that it cost then was the equivalent of buying a nice new car, and now it's the equivalent of buying, like, a super luxury car, um, you know, the questions of whether or not it's worth it, it's, it's entirely in scale to what your disposable income is. I mean, you know, if you have the kind of money where you think that dropping 300 or $3,000 on a bottle of uh, alcohol is, you know, not going to uh, hurt you, <laughs> it's not going to be painful, um, then yeah, it's totally worth it. But if that is a lot of money to you and it's a painful expense to part with it, then no, it's not. You know, those things are very relative, whether or not it's worth it. You know, is, is it was it worth its fame? Yes, it's worth its fame. Is it worth $100,000 a bottle? I don't have $100,000 to spend on anything. So no, not to me. <laughs> that makes sense, and I guess like the person, the person buying it for a hundred thousand dollars—that's probably like a hundred yeah. bucks to somebody else. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's you know, people like Jeff Bezos buy things like that, not me. <laughs> is is when you look at, though, like the price range of whiskey, is there a sweet spot in there where you can get something that's a really good quality but not that expensive? Like, is there a sweet spot pricing-wise? There are certain items that are a little pricey, uh, but I think they're worth the amount of money that you would pay for it. Um, one example of this is... Um, Michter's 10-year-old rye, which is a single barrel. Um, I love that stuff. And if you can get it for $150, because some retailers will mark this up steeply, but if you can get it for $150, I think it's worth $150. And there are a lot of things that, you know, that are in that kind of range where they're like $100 or $150 or $200. And for most people, that is like, you know, a birthday present to self or Christmas present to self kind of price range. You know, it's it's expensive, but it's not terribly so. It's not, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you can splurge on it realistically. What's your favorite cheap whiskey? Like the kind of rot gut stuff. <laughs> oh, rot gut. Um, my drinking is, I guess you could call it subsidized because, you know, people send me things and they want me to try them. But let me try to think. That's a question I haven't thought about in a long time. Like, what's actually really, really cheap? You know, like something simple like Jim Beam White Label. You know, it's I, I treat it as sort of the benchmark uh, for what bourbon is supposed to be because it is the, the you know, best-selling of the bunch. And it's not very expensive. Um, you know, where, where I live, it's about $13 a bottle. And... Uh, I mean, you know, seriously, there's there's craft beer. Getting a six-pack will cost you more than that. And it's not remarkable, but it's still just plain good stuff. You know, when I get asked, like, what is an example of rot gut, uh, one of the things I like to point to is this uh, stuff called Kentucky Gentleman. And um, there are actually two different types of Kentucky Gentleman. One is a bourbon, and that is a very subpar bourbon. And then underneath it is uh, blended whiskey. And the blended whiskey really is just awful. I do not like it at all. But there's a lot of cheap stuff that is good and uh, presents big big bargains uh, for the amount of money that you spend. Um, uh, of course, the best examples of that are disappearing one by one. There used to be this thing here in Kentucky. It was the kind. Of, it was something that you know if you were. Coming to uh, uh, this, coming from out of state, um, you should go to a liquor store, try to find it, and buy like half a case and take it home. Um, it was made by Heaven Hill. It was Heaven Hill six year old bottled and bond, which was only a Kentucky release. You couldn't get it anywhere else but here, and uh, it was just very good stuff. Not great stuff, but very good. And it was only eleven dollars a bottle. And for $11 a bottle, it was the best buy on the planet. Um, They don't do that anymore. (laughs) They discontinued it. Um, You know, word about it started to get around. And so more and more often, you know, fewer and fewer people had it because tourists would grab it, Um, which, you know, I appreciated that very much. I was basically like, well, it makes my life a little harder. Um, But that's okay. You know, more people enjoying it. That's fine. And, you know, I, I, I know how to take care of my needs, so that's okay. 
And uh, then, you know, Heaven Hill caught on to how popular the stuff was getting and decided that they could do something with that in terms of marketing. So they withdrew it. They uh, turned it from a six-year-old into a seven-year-old. They released it nationally, and they raised the price from $11 to 40 <laughs> and that's that's the kind of thing that happens with these uh, these sleeper whiskeys that are really cheap and they're really good. These days, they can't stay that way for very long. There's a few years of people buzzing about them, and uh, bang. Better better way to add water to whiskey: straight water or in ice form. Oh well, um, given that um, I spend a lot of time. Um, not, you know, out in the summer and not in air conditioning. I have absolutely nothing against um, putting big blocks of ordinary ice into a glass of whiskey. Um, And I do tend to look at that as primarily a climate thing. You know, like when it's it's wintertime, you know, autumn, early spring, um, I'm not drinking chilled anything. (laughs) So... I switch strictly to uh, putting a splash of, of water in. Coolest person you've ever had a drink with? Um, just, just the most all-around cool time I ever had drinking with somebody before was, uh, you know, I was up in Scotland and um, I was meeting with uh, Alan Winchester, who's the master distiller at uh, the Glenlivet, and uh, that was just one of those situations where between him and who else was there that was the coolest uh you know bottle of scotch i've ever killed um just simply because you know the conversation was so great and the time was so interesting um you know it was just a very very well spent kind of thing where you came out and you just was like that was that that really hit the nail on the head that was just an awesome time Last question for me. If you had to give a top three, what would be in your top three? Well, my top three, um, I get that a lot. Like, what are your favorite things to drink? What are your things to do this, that, or the other thing? And I tend to think of it in terms of go-to, you know? It's just basically like, because go-tos are more accessible. Right. Like, I could I could talk about the, the, the all-time mind-blowing experiences, like, you know, the, the super expensive uh, Macallan that I just mentioned before, or um, drinking um, 28-year-old uh, Irish single pot still whiskey straight from uh, Port Pipe at the New Middleton Distillery, things like that. But, you know, that's not, like, normal stuff that uh, everybody can appreciate. And um, what's on my shelf right now in terms of go-to, what have I got out? Um, let's see. Well, before I mentioned the uh, Michter's 10-year-old rye, I have the Michter's 10-year-old uh, single-barrel bourbon, and that's on my shelf, and that's the priciest thing that's there. Um, right now I've got Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel because it's new, and uh, it's wonderful for kind of like a dessert whiskey. Um, I've got Balconis Brimstone which is super smoky, um, if you're into that kind of thing. Wild turkey rare breed rye. And a, uh, I brought this up because they just reinstituted it. Um, Knob Creek small batch nine-year-old. And, um, you know, any of those things would be on my list of go-to favorites. That's really all the questions I had. What's coming up next for you? How can people kind of find out more about you? Um, well, let's see. 
So my writing is here, there, and everywhere. Um, I'm the owner and the editor of the Whiskey Reviewer, which is uh, at this point a fairly well-known uh, whiskey issues website. Um, and of course, there are the books that I've written or contributed to. The last one, which, like I said, we launched that in February, is uh, American Whiskey. Um, and right now, I'm writing fairly steadily for uh, Chilt Magazine and Vine Pair. I want to thank Richard so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Instagram and Twitter, and we have also included his information on the RSS feed that's on this podcast. Okay, now let's give John Shaw a call. Hello? Are you an appetizer guy, an entree guy, or a dessert guy? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, I'm probably more of an appetizer guy. To be Ooh, me too. I think. Yeah. See, I didn't get into appetizers until what I would honestly say is too late in my life. And some things I think are appetizers you don't think are. So I think you have to draw the line as to what is an appetizer. Well, when I go to a restaurant, if it's under the appetizer, I would consider that to be an appetizer. All right. That, I'm pretty sure I've said things like chicken wings and nachos, and you said, no, those aren't appetizers, and they're under the appetizer menu. Right, but I would consider those to be appetizers. I'm sure that your memory of the situation is completely wrong. It generally seems to be the track record. When when would you when did you discover appetizers? Because I probably didn't discover appetizers until I was 29. Wow, that's it's really late. Uh, I would probably say when I started going to the bars, so 21. Really? Now... Yeah, you, you know, you go to the bars and you have pre-drinks or, you know, before whatever you're going to do, and you always get food. You don't want to get something too heavy, right? So you get some appetizers. Really, in, in hindsight, what we should have done is load up on the food, and that would have actually kind of continued the night. Because <laughs> then you would have a solid base. See, I never laid down a solid base, and that's what I should have been doing. But you didn't have appetizers as like a kid with your parents? Uh, no, no, we, uh, no, we just, we didn't really, we didn't eat out a whole lot. We didn't go to restaurants very often. And if we did, uh, you know, they weren't the kind of places that had appetizers usually. We didn't go out <laughs> to eat a lot, but appetizers was never something that was even considered. Like, what do you mean you're going to eat before you eat? You're just going to eat the entree. Appetizers was a luxury that the Vinzant family did not, did not subscribe to. What do you got? Moving move on. Do you have like a specific appetizer that you always get or that you like love? I probably would go with chicken wings, right? That's 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 what. No, I would consider nachos to be more of an appetizer than chicken wings. So I would probably go with nachos. The problem is my wife always gets this spinach dip. I've never liked it. I've always thought it was a waste of time. But every time I see spinach dip on the menu, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm having spinach dip again. <laughs> I'm the, listen, I'm the same way. My wife, well, my wife likes the queso dip, so we'll get the queso instead of the spinach. Is queso different than cheese? No, it's a kind of cheese. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's not <laughs> do any research and just continue on. What do you got? I, I, I want to mention one thing before I continue with what I have is that I was standing here talking to you, and three lights above my head just blew out. Okay. How, how, 
Are you sending me bad vibes? No, you thousand miles away. No, you just don't take care of your household. Ah, crap! I don't. I can't even tell you what kind of light bulbs are in them. Uh, so this is going to be a terrible, a terrible explanation. Yeah, this is um, making a lot more sense why your light bulbs are going out. I'm predicting a pretty big pattern here. <laughs> I listen. I'm an educated guy, right? I'm not as dumb as I appear uh, on the telephone. Um, either Ooh. way, you know, it doesn't matter. Look, let me ask you this. One, I have one light still. It doesn't matter. Look, let me ask you this. Do you feel like you look dumber than you are or sound dumber than you are? Oh, look a thousand percent. I think I sound dumber. Like, I don't think people would look at me and be like, oh, that's probably guy's probably dumb. But they would hear me and think I was dumb. You, oh, no, they would I, probably I think... just look at you and think that you were dumb. Yeah, a thousand percent. I think, you know, I make the joke all, all the time that, you know, if I'm in the middle of a crowd, uh, you know, people automatically think that I'm just the, you know, country bred, you know, steak only eating farmer, you know, just because of my build and usually my stupid haircut. But I'm not, actually. I'm the complete inverse. So. Is that, that. Is that the right word? I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm. The opposite, maybe? Maybe I should have just gone and tried to just use a simple word. Yeah, I think inverse means that you are, like, turned inside out. I, th I would have gone opposite or reverse. I don't know what inverse <laughs> means at all. I'm pretty sure that's wrong. For people who've never seen John, this is no offense to you, man, but picture like a fat dummy. Oh, okay, that's what John looks like. No, I wouldn't say a fat dummy. I mean... The upper half has gotten a little big over time, but my bottom half, I, I still look like a pear, I would say. Oh, so you're saying that if people saw you from the knees down, they wouldn't consider you to be a fat dummy? I don't think so. I don't I, I don't think so. Okay, at what point, if someone was to consider you a fat dummy, at what point, Why are we even having as, this discussion? as your eyes are going up from your feet to your head, at what point looking at you would someone say, oh, that's a fat dummy? Probably the probably the stomach area, I would think. I don't know, man. Well, yeah, your waist isn't that big. So it wouldn't yeah, even might, be at might... like crotch region that someone would start thinking that. Well no, I got a gigantic penis. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, did you did you steal on. did you steal it from someone else? No, I got <laughs> I got that implant surgery three months ago that you were telling me about. If you were gonna lengthen your penis, how much would you lengthen it by? Oh my I mean, I'd probably have to have discussions with my wife first, but if I was just going on what I wanted to do, probably a good six to ten inches. Oh. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm an average man, I think, in many ways. I really wouldn't go any farther than two inches. Honestly, that just seems uncomfortable for everybody involved. Like, you got to carry that thing around with you? Yeah, I'm talking about, like, I, I'd want to go through, like, airport security, and they'd be like, what's in your pants, sir? I'd be like, why don't you take a look? Really? Anyways, I don't know why um, it would show right. up. on. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to segue into uh, giving shout-outs to people after just talking about that 20 seconds ago, but here we go. Uh, let's uh, give some shout-outs to people who uh, took time out of their busy lives to chat with us on social media. Oh, my God, All get right. to it. I'm getting to it. It's like an hour uh, later. Jessica Justice, appreciate you. Matt, uh, Andrea, Jack Norman. That's two people, by the way. Andrea and then Jack Norman. Uh, Mike, uh, Wanaka, 
Sarah Taylor, Nita, Earl, and Lucy. Appreciate everyone checking us out uh, this week on uh, Profoundly Pointless on the social interwebs. All right, Nick, speaking of, I literally wrote this question down to ask you. All right, um, do you watch SNL? No. All right, so this question is going to... Nah, we're just going to skip over that one. No, now I want to hear what it is. What's the question? Maybe the audience. Why don't you involve them as well? There are a few people who listen to this show. Why don't you not be a dick and just completely avoid them? That's not true. No one listens to this, but I will say it anyways for your amusement. Uh, Who does a better job at making fun of of, uh, their person? Jim Carrey as Joe Biden or Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump? I've only seen one. I, I think I think Baldwin is way better as Trump. I thought Jim Carrey a couple of weeks ago was actually kind of terrible as Joe Biden. But what? I think it's because I'm not a big Jim Carrey fan in the first place. I can't believe that Jim Carrey would be bad at anything. Are, was that facetious or are you being serious? I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that with you, and that should give you my answer. Um, this is kind of timely, and if anyone hasn't seen either of these shows and you kind of like the sci-fi genre, I suggest you check them out. But uh, you got to pick one, Umbrella Academy or The Boys? Which Umbra- one are you picking? Umbrella Academy, I like them both. Umbrella Academy is the better show, though. I think The Boys, like, they both are the different take on the superhero kind of genre, but I think Umbrella Academy is, it, it has more interesting characters overall. Like, The Boys, you kind of know ultimately, like, all right, I know where this is going a little bit, and eventually you're going to get there. But the Umbrella Academy, you literally like I don't, I don't know what the hell is going to happen here. <laughs> the, t- the the time jump is a little bit it's, it's jumping a little bit too much for me in the Umbrella Umbrella Academy. But I'm trying to stay with it. I'm not a big fan of the time jump shows. So okay, who's your favorite character on the Umbrella Academy? Who's your favorite character on the Boys? Uh, the Boys is definitely Butcher. Okay, I'm um, a Huey man. I'm a Huey man. <laughs> of course you are. Um, and then on the Umbrella Academy, um, I mean, I, I, I like number five a lot. I can't believe that kid's only 17 years old in real life. I mean, he plays such a, a good character. Yeah, he does a great job. This is a very well-acted show if anyone hasn't checked it out. Uh, Vanya is probably my favorite. See, I, I don't want to give away spoilers in the second season, but her storyline in the second le- season, the majority of it, I, I, I could have, you know, I was just like, get it over with already, you know? I just didn't really care about it. But Okay, well, that's a ridiculous opinion. <laughs> but either way, check out those two shows if you have any kind of interest in that genre. They're, they're well worth your time, in my opinion. So That's it, man. I, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, man, okay, you're actually done. All right, so what we're counting down now is this top <laughs> Such five. Such a dick. No, I'm just so used to you having long pauses that I kind of just like, all right, we'll give him another 30 seconds for him to spit these last two words out, and then we'll circle back around. I was actually looking at this picture of an owl my son drew when you finished. I was like, oh, you know what it says? Pretty cool animals. You know what it says? Let's go. You know what it says? It says, "Owl always love you." It's very heart touching from a four year old. He doesn't mean it. No, not at all. How could you? (laughs) Like you're four years old. Fuck you know about anything. Um, so our top five is top five cheap beers. I don't come at me with some super regional stuff that you can find in one gas station in Detroit. Okay. It's gotta be at least, at least like a region of the country. 
I'm going to go cheap as something that's around a dollar a can. Okay, I mean, I went cheap. I I knew you were going to say that about the regional, so I have one beer on here that is sold in the Northeast. Okay. So, um, and I'm actually going to start with that, and it's uh, by Founders in the great state of Michigan. It's called All Day IPA. All right, the fact that it's an IPA automatically kicks it off of this list. That's a ridiculous opinion. I don't need to know anything other than the fact that it's an IPA that's too classy. That's off the list. <laughs> how much is it? How much is it for like a six pack or a case? Uh, I mean, a twelve pack of cans you can probably get for eleven ninety nine. So you can probably get like a dollar per beer. All right, that's like that's a little high. I think that's an IPA that's a little bit too high to be a cheap beer. It's definitely marginal. Like. I'm going to go with my number five for exa- a better example is Bush Light. <laughs> oh, man, I'm really excited to see your list. Like, I don't even want to tell you my list. I just want you to tell me one through five right now on your list. Oh, just think of the cheapest crap you can think of. Stuff that you'd uh, be like, it's basically just rubbing alcohol in water. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, I'm kind of a beer snob, uh, but I'm doing my best here. I, I drink cheap beer. Um my number four, I have Tecate. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, our, that's that's definitely, like, that's a throw off. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that, but that's definitely a cheap beer, and it tastes like a cheap beer. I didn't hate it. They sell, they sell you know, uh, 32 ounces, and you just get a couple of those, and you're good to go. It tastes like absolute horseshit. What is Mickey's? Is Mickey's beer? What is that? No, it's um, uh, it's well, it's a, it's malt. It's a malt beverage. So okay, so what I, is that? Do you know what that is, or are you just gonna say malt beverage and assume that somebody knows? I, I, you what know, you're I, I'm about? Not, I don't really know what a malt beverage is. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't have any idea. I, I, I mean, I know it's made from some kind of hops. So okay, uh, my number four is Keystone Light. Oh my god, that's so terrible. That's man. I remember back date myself a little bit. That was like, ooh, you could get that twelve ninety nine for a thirty pack, <laughs> and there was there was no other reason to buy Keystone Light than like you're getting drunk at a kegger, or not a kegger, but you got you getting drunk in a field. Yeah, get you some <laughs> Keystone Light. Okay, that's so bad. I I mean I have it on my honorable mention. Um, oh, that's so bad. People people um, should be able to tell if you're. People who work at liquor stores should be able to tell if someone's underage simply by the beer that they're buying. If you're buying Keystone Light, that person is 17. <laughs> I mean, really any of these cheap beers, if you're not, you know, uh, over 65 and an alcoholic, you're 17 and under, or whatever, 21 and under. Yeah, pretty much. It's a dead giveaway. What's your number, uh, are we on number three? What's your number three? Yeah, my number three, and it's actually one of my favorite beers, and it's Heineken. That's not a cheap beer. What the fuck are you thinking? I mean, you can get an 18-pack for 22 bucks, 23 bucks. I mean, that's like a dollar something a beer. Right, that's too high class, I think. <laughs> I mean, right, I'm not. I'm not putting on... Bush Light or Natty Light or God knows fucking Rolling Rock, but the Heineken to me is just a good cheap drinking beer. I think if they advertise on, that's really the way we should have done this. If they're advertising on television, it's not cheap enough. 
that's a great point, I guess. That's right? We should have done it. You're right. Yeah. And there's way too many Heineken ads on there for that to be a cheap beer. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's like the high class of cheap beers to me, but it's still a cheap beer. I would put it at the lowest rung of mid-level. That's just my personal opinion. Um, my number three is it may be a little regional, but it's Rainier. Okay, I mean, I, I I'm sure they sell that in more places than just Seattle, so you you get a pass. Look, that. You can get their 16-ounce cans. I think you can get a case for sixteen ninety nine. That's a good deal. I mean, it's it's a good deal if, if you just want to be drunk and have a headache after four or five or six of them. Right. That's what I like to do. All right, uh, what's, your, what's your number two? My number two is Miller High Life. Okay. All right. Um, strictly for the fact that, you know, that was, I, I mean, kind of what you said earlier, I remember in college, you could go get, you know, an 18 pack of bottles for like ten ninety nine. Of the cheap beers, they were the first mainstream cheap beer to really jump on the 30 pack. Like Keystone <laughs> came out with the 30 pack and I think it got picked up by all the 17 year olds. And then Miller Lite thought, oh, there's something here. They were the, they're the nicest 30 pack beer. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, right? They're the champagne of beer, right? That's the champ Miller High. Well, Miller High Life is the champagne of beers. I never knew if they were the same thing. Is Miller Light and Miller High Life the same company? I would assume it is. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think they're under the same umbrella. Yeah. But is Miller High Life supposed to be a completely different beer than Miller Light? I, I think so, because one's the champagne of beers, and the other is the light version of, of Miller. Right, like Budweiser and Bud Light. Like, Bud Light is just the light version of Budweiser, but is Miller Light the light version of Miller High Life? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I'll give both of mine here at the same time. My number one is Miller Light, just because I think, like we said, that's the classiest of the cheap beers. My number two is Natural Light. Oh, my God, man. Man, I have a. Uh, I just think I, I have a terrible natty light story of just, you know, I, I was at a bachelor party and that was one of the beers and I, you know you drink them like water and one time I had one and I left it out in the sun and I went back to it and I went to drink it and I had like just a little bit of the like a little bit of the beer than the scum of the you know the scud at the bottom. Yeah. Thought I was gonna throw up. I may have actually thrown up. I don't even remember. No natty light for me, you sick son of a bitch. I remember being 17 and literally keeping a case of that in the back of my truck in Kansas and not even bothering to, like, refrigerate it in any way. There was no point. <laughs> oh, man. And see, you you are why that beer has a terrible name. Uh, my number two is... Na oh, wait, I gave... What's your number one, then? Is it going to be Bud yeah, Light? Yeah, one and then two. My number uh, one is Coors Light. What? Yeah, man. It's delicious. Really? That's a lifestyle choice. I, I'm, I'm not following you. What, what I mean, it's just, a, it's just a light beer. Lifestyle choice in the same sense that, like, somebody who drinks orange pop, somebody who wears flip-flops with sandals, like, it's... It's a seemingly innocuous choice that tells you everything about that person at the same time. 
Like somebody shows up with Milwaukee's Best Light or Keystone or Natural Light. I'm just thinking, all right, that's a that's a cheap beer guy. Like they're just going to drink cheap beer. If you show up with Coors Light, you're saying a whole other thing about you. But I mean, per you know, price per can, it's probably the same as most of the beers you just mentioned. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Coors Light is like, oh god. You have to go out of your way to get that. I mean, you're right. You have to walk 10 steps a little bit down past the absolute shitty beer to get to the Coors section. Yes, 10 steps away. You've got to look around like, oh, no, I don't want to get this Bud Light. We always have Bud Light. I'm going to be the guy who brings Coors Light, even though nobody likes it. I mean, I like Coors Light, and I think they had one of the most innovative things ever. With the stupid mountains on the can. Doesn't they change color? Yeah. Yeah, they're they're blue until they're not. And right. then you know not to drink it anymore. Right. So that that's impressive to idiots. <laughs> I mean Who's You're just mad because you wish you I wish I would have came up with that idea. Neither of us would be talking to each other right now. How do you have a bunch of grown adults sitting around in a multi million, if not billion dollar business and think, you know what? That's the best way to get people to buy this. Let's market this to adults and tell them that the can changes color. I mean, you have to know your audience, right? Right. They clearly know their audience. That's what I'm saying, right? Like they're targeting morons and the idea that, you know what? Sales are down. What should we do? Well, we could make this stuff taste better or we could lower the price to like $5.99 for a 30-pack. Or we can keep everything the same and make the can sh- change color, and they'll love it. I guess I'm. I, I I feel like we're all though. Everyone who's had one of these beers falls into the idiot category because they're it's not good beer at all. No, but it's cheap. That's what I don't right. Like you just buy it because it's cheap. Nobody's drinking this stuff for the taste. I do actually like the taste of Rainier. I will say that. <laughs> Which surprises me because you're not necessarily. A beer guy. No, I really generally don't like... Something happened around 25 where I just don't like the taste of it anymore. The best cheap beer I've ever had was one can of Bud Light that maybe they put too much sugar in it. It was fucking delicious. I've never had another good one since. But what's in your honorable mention? So I have Milwaukee's Beast. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Bud Light, Keystone Light. Um, I put Corona Light. I don't think Corona's a cheap beer. Yeah, I wasn't entirely sure about that, but, um, and then, uh, yeah, man, that's, uh, I also put regular Miller down, but I don't remember the last time I had, like, a Budweiser or, like, a Miller. I always get the light because, you know, why not? I don't know if I've ever actually had a Budweiser, mostly because I don't like punching my wife. (laughs) I mean, I feel like you have to have at least one of the red cans. Like the old school one, but like the red and the white cans, you have to have had one of those at some point. I don't know. I don't think I ever have. I don't think I've ever tried a Budweiser or probably an original Coors, honestly. Uh, the Coors, I mean, Coors is fine. What's, uh, like what? Like Coors Light is where it's at. Okay, let's, let's indulge your snobbery. What is the absolute worst beer that you can remember ever having and the best beer that you'd be like, ooh, I'm gonna make this whole. I'm gonna make this recommendation. <laughs> I mean, 
And you're talking about any kind of beers, right? Sure. Okay. I mean, the worst beer I've ever had was a like a chocolate stout that they said to have at room temperature. But I, I, I literally, I think it got too hot and it like started to almost curdle and it was like drinking mud pretty much. That was fucking disgusting. I'll never forget that. And I don't really like stouts now because of it. And for the best beer, it's hard for me to really pick one out. I'm I'm an IPA guy, so the higher the ABV, the better I like it. Higher the alcohol, usually the better I like the beer. Okay, all right. Thank you for the uh, beer snob report. <laughs> yeah, I am a beer snob. I'm sorry, it's true. I think the worst stuff I ever had was like at a gas station in Missouri, and it was literally just a black can that said beer on it. And it might have been like 25 cents a can. <laughs> Man. I can't think of any honorable mentions that you didn't mention. Um, Milwaukee's Beast. Ugh. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like, there's a lot of light beers or a lot of cheap beers, but there really aren't at the same time. No, they're basically all made by the same people. <laughs> that's right? the damn truth. It's basically just Bud, whoever runs Budweiser and whoever runs... Whatever the Miller. Is. Miller. Yeah, that's basically only two beer companies. All right, this has gone downhill. <laughs> okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. Would love to hear what your guys' cheap beer of choice is. And when, look, and obviously, like we talked about, when you think cheap beer, it's basically the stuff that you drank to get drunk when you were younger. If you're still drinking it, right? I remember seeing my dad drinking a natural light at like the age of 70. But if you're still drinking this, man, let us know what's good. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.